I'm thrilled to introduce Eric to you this morning, Eric Levesque. Um, he is a, a retired uh, lieutenant colonel from the United States Marine Corps. Uh, he shared with our, yeah, we appreciate that. He has shared with our brothers at men's night a couple of times, and I've enjoyed it so much. Uh, I said, Eric, you're going to have you preach. So uh, welcome this morning. So glad. I feel like I need to stand on my tiptoes a little bit. <laughs> I love you, brother. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you for having me. You bet. Here we go. Oh, well, good morning, church. It's great to be here amongst you. It's a real honor to be up here. It's a little humbling as well. Um, I did spend uh, 21 years, short years, on active duty. There's some, uh, there'll be some pictures coming up here in a little bit to give you kind of a flavor of what, uh, what I went through. Uh, I go by many different titles, uh, maybe starting off with husband of the most wonderful woman on the planet of the earth, Jacqueline. I'm a father. I'm a son. Uh, I'm a friend, hopefully a good one. I can't always guarantee that, but... Uh, uh, and. Uh, Many other titles. Some of those titles in the Marine Corps would include uh, Marine, uh, a real honor to carry that title. My uh, rank was Lieutenant Colonel, as uh, Scott had pointed out. Uh, another important title was uh, Strider. That was my call sign. As a fighter pilot, you all have uh, call signs. That helps us communicate with each other tactically without giving out our names and maybe the mission uh, call letters. So we use those uh, often. That picture that's up there, that was uh, from a couple years ago, Jackie and I at the last Marine Corps birthday ball, or two birthday balls ago. Um, but probably the most important title that I carry is, uh, well, there's a couple of them, forgiven, saved, and redeemed. And uh, without those, without that status, then I would be nothing. And it is, uh, it is humbling to be up here because... Um, I'm not really qualified to be in front of you. There's nothing inside me or from Eric Levesque that makes me qualified enough to be here in front of God's people, in front of his church. Um, in fact, like Paul said, and I agree with him, that I am the worst of all sinners. And Paul called himself that, and I am right in line with him, so I guess I'm in good company. Uh, but there's nothing intrinsically about me that makes me qualified to be up here. The only thing, the only things that qualify me is that wonderful grace of Jesus Christ that redeemed me and purchased me at a price. The, uh, the quality that he takes broken vessels like me, sinners, imperfect guys, and takes us and uses us to reach the world around us. And that's exactly what he did, and that's exactly what he's doing, and that's exactly what he will continue to do because he's promised to complete the good work that he started. Paul wrote Timothy, he said, hey, you can be sure of this. God is going to complete that work, and I have trusted in that. So my message today following in the living out the gospel is the Lord is my strength, my defense, my hope, and my salvation, and it comes pretty much right from Exodus 15:2. And uh, if you want to turn there, you can. It's a real brief verse. Moses is proclaiming this with the nation of Israel. They just finished crossing the Red Sea. Most of us know that great story. I will not get into it. But God had done great things before Moses. And then Moses proclaims these things. It's a, almost like it's a revelation that, okay, now, now I do know that he truly is my strength. He truly is 
the one I'm hoping in, and he is the one that will save us again and again and again. And God demonstrated that. We're going to talk a little bit more about Moses because he was not always that guy. Just like the man standing before you right now was not always the Marine, the father, the husband, or the friend, and the believer that I am right now. I did not always live in boldness and strength. I lived in fear and concern and doubt and uh, self-loathing for uh, many years. So, why am I here? How, what is it that's important to share? Well, I want to share a verse with you from Psalm 71, if you could open that up. Verses 14 through 21. This is David. And he'd been through a lot of experiences up to this point. So starting out in verse 14, as for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteous deeds, yours alone. Since my youth, God, you have taught me. To this day, I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the generation and the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. Your righteousness, God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, who is like you, God? Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. You will increase my honor and comfort me once more. And I completely believe in that today, church. And I hope that you all can do that too. I want to encourage you and challenge you this morning with a few stories from my life. And they're not really my stories. They're actually God's stories, and I just happen to be a part of them. He is the one that orchestrates, and he is the one that directs our paths. In fact, there's a little saying in the front of my Bible here. It comes from uh, Proverbs 16. A man plans in his heart what his course is going to be, but the Lord determines his steps. I've made a lot of plans in my life, but the Lord has directed the path. And many of my plans came to nothing, but all of God's plans came to full fruition, whether with me or in spite of me, so often in spite of me. So the new man standing before you, when Jesus got a hold of me, and I'm going to share a little bit of my salvation story, but when Jesus did finally get a hold of me, he had to wrestle me down just like Jacob. <clears throat> and after that wrestling match, I had complete faith in the creator of the universe, the master of this universe, the lover of my soul, that he would do everything possible which was everything on my behalf. And I lived that way. I was taking Jesus at his word when I began to read the Gospels, and that was the first thing I read was the Gospels. I came to John chapter 14, verse 12, and he said, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. Again, this is John chapter 14, verse 12. He'll do the things I've been doing. In fact, he'll do even greater things because I'm going to the Father. Well, that is a big ask, because Jesus did a lot of great things. But I was taking him at his word, and I still do today. So during my time on active duty, God really was my strength. He was my power. He was my hope. And he was my salvation. I, I was able to work with the greatest warriors in the world. I served under them. I worked with them. And I, and I led Marines into battle many times um, in the air over Kuwait and Iraq, the Persian Gulf, 
uh, on the ground in Central and South America and Central Africa, uh, God continued to allow me to lead these world-class warriors, the greatest warriors the earth has ever seen, actually, outside of David. And it was a humbling experience. And along with that, many times over, in fact, more than I can count, I should be dead. I should not be standing here before you. I should have never returned to my family after the first combat tour or after the next or after the next or after the next. I should be dead many times over. And yet for some reason, God chose to preserve me and my life. And I'm thankful for that. He preserved me from countless missiles being shot at me, millions of rounds shot in my direction, uh, being blown up, being burned off by white phosphorus in the combat field, uh, falling from three stories, dual flame out in my aircraft in a uh, high altitude decompression, rapid decompression at 60,000 feet that could kill you. And yet here I am. That was over North Korea, by the way. Recovered from multiple engine failures and aircraft system failures. Never had to punch out of the aircraft once. Never once. Um, he has allowed me to pass through massive storms that should have just completely destroyed our aircraft, but it didn't. And he allowed me to survive those operations that I described. But through it all, Jesus was my strength. He was my hope, my shield, and my salvation. I want to read to you now from uh, Psalm 91, if you could bring that up. It'll take a few moments, but I think it's worthwhile to get through. Because this was my life psalm from that first moment in combat. Psalm 91, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night and there was many terrible nights nor the arrow that flies by day, and like I said, they were countless, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plagues that destroy at midday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your hand. And I saw those things, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him. For he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble and I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him salvation. And that's all God's work and not mine. It is completely him. And any faith that I have in me is put there because of Jesus. I can't claim rights to that faith. It's all Jesus working in me. So I want to share with you a story from uh, Desert Storm. That was quite a few years ago. I realize I'm a dinosaur. That's all right. 
<clears throat> and the aircraft I flew, most of those are up on sticks. The weapons I fired on the ground, most of those we don't utilize anymore. There's still a few out there. So this is a little bit of legacy. It was the uh, second day of combat operations during Desert Storm. You remember Iraq had invaded Kuwait. Coalition force came together, put together a powerful force, and we began air operations on the 16th of uh, February. So on the, actually it was the very early morning of the 18th, so it was about 36 hours into it. Um, we were uh, tasked with, uh, oh, and on the first day of combat operations, big day for the Levesque family, not only was that my first experience in combat, but uh, my first child was born on the earth. So she was thousands of miles away, but I did get to talk to her mom during and after the birth. It was an amazing story. I won't share that part of it. But a lot of things were going on in my life and in my heart, and now I had so much more to fight for and so much more to lose because what happens if I don't get home to that little baby girl that was just born into my life? So... I was assigned to, uh, if you can scroll ahead to the next set, that would be great, the next set of pictures. Uh, I was assigned as part of a flight of four. We call it a division in the Marine Corps. Division is a flight of four. That guy up there next to me, his name is Badger Arnett. Badger's his call sign. His first name's Jay. And uh, <clears throat> he's probably one of the toughest guys I know. You can imagine with a call sign like Badger why he's the toughest guy I know. Um, I, he's a legendary fighter and attack pilot in the Marine Corps. He was becoming one during this phase of our lives. He was only uh, about a year ahead of me. I got into the squadron a year ahead of me. And he was my section lead. So he was my flight lead. And uh, that's standing in front of our operations tent there. Our squadron name was the Lancers, VMFA 212 Lancers. So back in the day, that was uh, a popular saying for our squadron. <clears throat> so I flew on his wing. And then as part of our division, if you go to the next uh, image, our, our division lead was Skull Guilfoyle. So Major Bill Guilfoyle, he's on the far left side there. You can see why his skull has kind of got a big skull. So sometimes your call signs aren't cool call signs. Usually they're not very cool. Next to him is my best friend, uh, Bundy is his call sign. His first name's Ted. <laughs> so, Yeah. And it's still his call sign to this day. And a lot of us, that's how we're known. We call each other by our call signs. In fact, many of my friends, my wife calls me Strider. So it's kind of fun. But anyways, so that was the flight. Uh, Skull was the mission commander. It was a 12-aircraft mission. Four of us were going to go attack a very important uh, weapons storage depot. Another four F-18s were going to do a MIG sweep. That means they're going to be doing a fighter sweep out ahead of us to make sure there's no enemy air. We had an EA-6B jamming, so jamming the enemy uh, uh, early warning radars. And then we had an F-18 that escorted him. So it was a 10-aircraft mission. The weather had started to deteriorate that day, um, so we had ceilings that were getting down to around 18,000 feet, which isn't too bad. However, our planned mission attack profile was going to be a multi-axis attack to make it hard for them to shoot at us because the Iraqis had a lot of AAA, which is anti-aircraft artillery, and they had a lot of surface-to-air missiles. We'd already taken out a lot the first day, but there was a whole lot left to take out, and this weapons munition was part of that process to get rid of the ability for them to spread those weapons throughout the uh, theater of war. And I'm trying to talk fast, so you have to listen fast, okay? I have a lot I want to get through. <clears throat> And some of you may have heard this story already, so I apologize if I'm going to bore you again, but it's an important story. It's a story of God's faithfulness and his care. 
And it's a story of true friends and of warriors, and I like those stories. So uh, our mission, our plan was to roll in at 20,000 feet, keeping uh, good and high, and deliver our weapons around 14,000 feet and be out by 12,000 feet, so we're still well above some of the very heavy uh, anti-aircraft artillery, lighter, but they have a heavy concentration of that amount of type of uh, anti-aircraft artillery. Well, as we uh, took off on our mission, we're flying into the theater. We uh, refueled and we flying into Kuwait. And as we're getting there, the weather is just deteriorating. So now we're in the goo or the clouds, but we call it the goo. So now we're in a very tight uh, parade formation for aircraft. And you can't see anything in front of your cockpit. All you can see is the wingtip next to you. So we're flying a welded wing, four aircraft, fully loaded, 4,000 pounds of bombs and all types of... Uh, uh, anti-radar missiles and air-to-air uh, -air missiles because the uh, F-18 is a multi-role aircraft. <clears throat> and as we're getting closer to the, about 50 miles out, Skull's like, gentlemen, we're talking to the FAC-A, and the FAC-A is an airborne forward air controller. So this guy was in an F-18, a two-seat F-18 that was off the coast monitoring the area that we're going to be attacking. So he wasn't in the area because he'd be shot down, but he was off the coast, and they've got some neat uh, forward-looking infrared and some other uh, targeting uh, systems on their aircraft and some really cool, very expensive binoculars that the backseater would use. I just call them binoculars. They're more than that, but just imagine that. So he's out there talking to Skull, our flight lead, and he says, hey, the weather's deteriorated. It sounds like the ceilings are about 12,000 feet, which is not a good thing because we were going to use a visual acquisition. Now, we all had radar designations on our target sites, but to finalize the, uh, the targeting, we needed visual acquisition to get direct hit on these uh, hardened targets. They were like four feet, five feet thick bunkers of concrete. So we needed direct hits with these uh, penetrating systems that we had on our weapons. <clears throat> so he comes up on our back radio, and Skull goes, all right, gents, we're really at a, a knock-it-off type of situation here. In other words... We, we go home because we are outside of our parameters. Or, if you're all good, let's press on. So what is it? So it was kind of like a quick Marine vote. And, of course, we're all like four press, three press, two press. And so we all decide we're going to press into the target area. Because who wants to go home, right? It's in the middle of the big game. <clears throat> so as we're getting closer, we're welded wing, four aircraft. We were planning on doing a multi-axis attack. Well, we're not doing that now. We're going to do what we call a Pappy peel-off. Anybody used to watch uh, the show about Pappy Boyington and uh, the Marine pilots? They roll in like this. Well, we're going to have to do that right out of the clouds. So as we get to the target area, we're all sweetening, sweetening up our target solutions on our DDIs. And uh, Skull goes, okay, I'm in position. One's in hot. So I can't see him because there's just too much goo. He's too far away. And then I hear two's in hot. And could you bring up the next picture, please? And the next one. That's the forward uh, air controller there that's off the coast. And the next one, there you go. So that's a cockpit of the F-18. There's a ground solution, a ground radar solution there on, that, uh, on the displays. And that's what we're seeing. It's very dark in the clouds. That's all you can see out your cockpit except for the wing next to you your flight lead's wing, because we're flying a welded wing. And now we're rolling into this target area that we can't even see right now. And it's supposed to have a little bit of resistance to it. So after dash two, my buddy Bundy rolls in, all of a sudden I'm hearing on the radios, oh my gosh, and a few expletives, look at all of that flak. And flak is a common term for AAA. And a couple more expletives from Bundy, and then uh, Badger rolls in, and so now it's just me. 
Well, the problem with a very low ceiling or a cloud layer is that you're highlighted under that cloud layer. It's easy for an enemy to pick you up visually when you have a cloud layer above you. And unless, like a blue sky, it's very hard to pick up aircraft. But a cloud layer above you, very easy to see the enemy. The other problem is that cloud layer ended up being about 11,000 feet, well below our minimum altitude that we were planning on getting out of there. So now we're going to be trying to acquire the target below 11,000 feet. It's not looking good. So then I roll in, and I'm dash four. So I'm what they call tail in Charlie. That's the worst place to be in an attack when you're attacking from the same axis, and the enemy knows exactly where you're coming from, and they can target all of their weapons up at you because now they know exactly where the threat is coming from. And we had no idea what was waiting for us when we came out of those clouds. So I'm rolling in at 13,000 feet, and finally at 11,000 feet, I break out. And now what I see is, can you go to the next slide, please? And this is kind of a cheesy representation. It's the best I could do, because I don't have any uh, video I could provide you. But it looked like in Star Wars when they went into hyperspace, right? And you're wondering, what is all that orange around you? Those are tracer rounds of the AAA that was coming up at me. There was probably 15 or so ZSU-23-4s, multi-gun weapons firing up at us, hundreds of thousands of rounds per second coming our way. And instantly, I said, Lord, I guess I'm coming home to see you today because I'm on company time. Company time means when we're in that delivery uh, dive, that means we don't get to jink and maneuver and try to avoid missiles or bullets coming up at you because your mission is to get that target designated and get your weapons off. That's your only mission in life. That's what you're called to do at that moment. And that's what I was called to do. And I figured I'm not going to survive this. But by the grace of God, I was able to acquire my target and two others because two guys couldn't get their weapons off. And we had a 100 over 100 battle damage assessment when we came out of there. Now, what was interesting is I'm having all these rounds shot at me, and I'm pulling up at a super high G. I was about almost nine Gs as I pull off, and the aircraft bleeds off energy quickly. So now I'm slow, and I'm trying to get out of this threat area, and the enemy's weapons are just tracking me all the way out. I made it into the clouds, which doesn't stop the bullets. It just keeps them from seeing you. And then finally we climbed out, and you can go to the next uh, image now. Climbed out at 39,000 feet, and then we saw a clear sky, and all was good. The amazing part of that was that when we got on the ground, there was not a single bullet damage. There was no battle damage at all to my aircraft or anybody else in our flight. And uh, even more amazing than that, 13 years later, we were having a small squadron reunion in San Diego. And uh, a few of us had gathered there. I was there for a combined arm exercise. And the guy that was in the back seat of that F-18 forward air control aircraft, I never spoke to him after that mission. Uh, but he had joined up with us down in San Diego, and we were all talking stories about, you know, current combat situations we'd been in, and then we got into Desert Storm. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I remember that one on the second day. It was uh, Skull was leading it, and who was Dash 4 in that flight? And uh, they're like, oh, that was Strider. And they know the story that's coming, but they didn't know what he had seen. Because everybody else in my flight, they just knew I was getting heavy uh, uh, rounds coming my way. And then they were out of the area, back into the clouds, climbing away as fast as they could. 
But what he saw was something that I had no clue of until 13 years later. He said, that was the most amazing thing I had ever seen, Strider. He goes, it was like you had a force field around your jet. He said, there were rounds, I could see the rounds ricocheting off of your aircraft, flying in every direction. He says, I've never seen anything like that. And he asked me, what kind of damage did you have your aircraft? And I said, I had zero. There was nothing. He goes, well, that was like... There was a shield, I go, and then Badger, who was at this conference, he starts smiling. He goes, yeah, we know what it was. And he goes, well, what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Praise God. And he says, well, what was it? I go, it was a total God thing. And Badger goes, yep, that's Strider. It was a God thing. All the guys after that mission were wanting to fly with me because they knew that God <laughs> was flying with me. And most of these gentlemen were self-made men. They're at the peak of, you know, the height of where people want to achieve in the military. They're fighter pilots, and they're combat fighter pilots, and they became legendary. They were self-made men, and many of them were not believers at the time. But I can tell you, almost to the man, every officer in that squadron now is a strong believer. From the years that they'd seen, yeah, praise God for that. They are not bashful about talking about Jesus as their Lord and how much they love God. And they come from all different faith backgrounds. But they know that the God of heaven was there for them, not just during that time, but through so many segments of their lives. So you may ask yourselves, well, and that was just one example. Every day, every mission, we did 40 combat missions, 40 days and 40 nights. It was really biblical, right? That's what it was, 40 days and 40 nights. And then the cease of hostilities. Um, and then more deployments and more challenges and more combat operations. In fact, one of our common phrases was, well, the bad news is business is good. But for Marines, the good news is business is good. So we were busy around the world for the rest of my career and continuing on. But let me say this. One might reasonably ask, when you're experiencing such horrible situations, such absolute death and destruction, what is it that allows you to have hope and joy in the midst of so much hopelessness? And my answer to that is the never-ending, ever-present love of the living God inside me. That is it. It is not in my ability because I've lacked ability most of the time. And God has always not just made up the difference. He has been the difference. I've shared the gospel and, uh, with many, many people. And often some of these guys I talk to, many of them warriors, they'll say, well, yeah, you're just using God as a crutch. And I go, no, 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 I'm not using him as a crutch. He's my entire lift system, a total lift system here. It is not a crutch, so you've kind of missed the mark. So in Romans 8, 38 and 39, if you turn there, Paul's writing to the church in Rome from where? Prison, having gone through horrible circumstances himself. And he says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I claim that today, and I will continue to claim that. I cannot sustain my relationship with Jesus. I don't have the ability to do that. But thank God for his love that he pours out and he pursues us with. A love that is never-ending, it's enduring, it sees through our shortcomings. And like Pastor Scott was saying, 
It is completely up to him. He did the entire work and continues to do that work on our behalf. So my question to you this morning, brothers and sisters, and those that may be soon becoming one, are you convinced of this truth? Because I wasn't before Jesus broke through in my life. I was kind of like Moses. And I won't have you turn to uh, Exodus, but the story of Moses is a great one. He became the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Time and time again, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and, and the believers would go back to the fact that all the teachings of Moses and the law came from Moses and what a great leader he was, what a great prophet he was. He was the great prophet. And yet, before he was that, he was a sniveling, whining, self-centered loser. And I just described myself, okay? Yeah. The story of Moses is a powerful one. He, uh, again, very self-centered, lived a very privileged life for most of his life, was saved out of absolute certain destruction, and he even knew that story, lived a privileged life, was very self-centered and wanting to do what he wanted to do with his life. And then decided he was just going to break the law and kill somebody because he got upset with how he treated one of the slaves. And then after God helped him out of Egypt, saved, rescued him from being arrested and probably put to death in Egypt, saved him through the wilderness, let him settle and make a whole new home and a whole new place where he was loved and cared for, and then after he's met, met God in person, face to face, and God's talking to him through the fire, he still has doubts when God says, I'm going to have you go to Pharaoh, and you're going to tell him, let my people go. And he's like, oh, I don't think I can do that. It's like, I got some other things to do right now, Lord, and uh, besides, they might kill me, and I'm not very good at speaking. And he had all kinds of reasons to tell God no. And in fact, the Bible tells us that God got so upset with him, his anger burned at Moses. And yet, God persevered. He gave options. He made a way for Moses. He continued to pour his love out on Moses, and he continued to demonstrate his power and his strength through him and through his acts of kindness and love towards his people. And because of that, Ultimately, Moses saw his need for God and his love for God and his trust in God was gained. And after that crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 15, he proclaimed that, yes, truly, God is my strength. He is my defender and he is my salvation. And that's what happened to me. I was a young man. I had plenty of tragedy in my life. I had plenty of reasons to want to hate God. He killed my mom. He killed all, most of my family. My, some of my friends were killed right in front of me. Uh, there's, you know, but people have seen worse things that I've seen as a kid. I had a great dad who loved me like crazy and cared for me. But I was also very selfish. I wanted things my way. I did not want to follow the God of the Bible. I wanted to make my own way. I did not want to have to submit myself to somebody else's authority. I wanted complete authority over Eric's life. Similar to Moses. And maybe similar to most of you. And yet God took me and put me into places. He put people in my life that shared the truth with me until I got into college. There was a good friend of mine. In fact, he's the one that shared with me about this Marine Corps officer candidate program. He was also a believer. 
that would sacrifice his name and his honor and ridicule from my friends and even myself to share what Jesus was doing in his life. His name is Brian Nodder. I didn't put a picture of him in this uh, presentation, but uh, I really appreciated the fact that Brian would go out of his way to speak words of truth to me that pierced my heart and my soul. And God used those words of truth during my time of becoming a Marine officer. Becoming a Marine was something that uh, I didn't, that wasn't something that I knew I could do. Up until this point, I had always done things that I knew I could achieve and that I would get great accolades from because I feared people's bad opinion of me. I feared man's opinion of who I was and what I was and what I could or couldn't accomplish. So this Marine Corps thing was totally outside of the window of uh, my realm of experience. I knew nothing about the military. I had an uncle that was in the Navy for about three years, and that was about it. I didn't have any experience in the military. And yet I felt this calling was turning inside to want to become this Marine officer. So I went to my first summer of officer candidate school. And uh, all of my friends before I left were like, Eric, you're never going to make it. You're not the Marine type. That's not you. You're going to fail. Maybe just maybe don't go. And, you know, you've got some other stuff plans. This isn't what you wanted to do anyways. You wanted to be a teacher. Um, so I had all those voices in my head. And I got to officer candidate school, but I was in good shape. And I worked out and I trained hard and I was prepared physically. And I thought, well, the physical part would be the easiest part. It's the mental and the, all the discipline part that I'm going to have to work through. Well, the first thing happened when I got there, the first physical fitness test we took, I couldn't take it because I had this massive arterial bleed up in my nose. I, I got a zero for that first score. And uh, they fixed me. They sent me home. The ice pack that I had had a leak, and then it, all that stuff caused a rash and a burn on my face. <laughs> this isn't good. And then about two or three weeks into the training, and now Marine Corps officer candidate training is probably, there's only one other type of initial training that's tougher than that, and that's Navy SEALs BUDS training. And officer candidate school for the Marine Corps, they don't want you to become a Marine. They want to screen and evaluate you to see if you've got what it takes to lead Marines. So in order to lead Marines, you've got to be able to set the example in everything that you do. So the dropout, the drop rate by the end of the whole course, mine was a two-summer course, is about 70%. 30% of the young men and women that go through that may make it. So I was there, I was doing well, and then I just got an infection in one of my toes. I'm giving you the short story. It, it turned into a, a hole that was going down into my bone. I couldn't walk anymore. I had to go see the doctor. The doctor looks at me, he looks at the toe. He goes, you know what? Uh, you have two choices. You can either go home and it might heal up and uh, uh, you might be disqualified. They might let you come back or you can stay, it's likely gonna get more infected. I'll have to remove the toe and maybe the whole front portion of your foot in another couple of weeks, and then you'll be disqualified for good. That's the very short version of what was going on. So my choices weren't good. It was either I might fail, or man, I'm really gonna fail if I stay here. And failure was one of my greatest fears because of my opinion of man, or man's opinion about me. So I went back to my squad bay, the old Quonset huts. Lovely piece of uh, uh, construction. The concrete was breaking off the floor. It had been around for 70 years already in Quantico, Virginia. I go back to my squad bay. The rest of my platoon's out marching. I can see them from the room there, and I was not allowed to march for a couple of days. I was on light duty. And I was sitting by myself, and I remembered 
uh, well, a little voice in my head said, remember what Brian had told you. And what Brian had mentioned to me at one point was that, Eric, at any time, the God of the universe who loves you is ready to hear your cry. He wants you to come to him at any time with any need that you might have. I didn't really believe him when he told me, and I didn't even believe it at that moment, but I remembered that he told me, and I believe that was the Holy Spirit prompting me now. And so I just threw up a prayer, one of those uh, Hail Mary, I said, God, Brian said I could come to you at any time with anything, so I am, and I'm speaking out loud in this squad bay. I said, I need you to fix this. And I didn't even know what that meant. I just need you to fix this. For me, it meant get me out of the situation where I won't have to face um, failure. But to God, it meant another brick in my wall being removed so that I could let the Savior of the universe into my heart. And so what he did was he took care of that wound. He just healed it up. A few weeks later, I was on full active duty doing everything, and I ended up finishing officer candidate school with pretty high scores, even though I had a zero at the beginning and a zero for another event that I missed because of that injury. And so I was back home recovering because it's a sleep deprivation and a starvation program. And I'm back home recovering, laying in my bed thinking, what a great guy I am. I have just achieved something that's impossible. I had all these adversities. I am an amazing man. I'm going to be a great warrior. I'm going to be a great Marine leader. And I'm laying in bed, and it's quiet. It's early in the morning. And uh, all of a sudden, this voice that sounded like my dad had come into the room and was at my door. He said, Eric, wait a minute. Who got you through officer candidate school? And I sat up because I thought, my dad, how did he know what I was thinking? Because it was that loud in my heart. How does he know what I'm thinking? And there was nobody there. And I laid back down. I'm like, well, that was kind of weird. Then I started thinking again how great I was, what a great achiever I am, and there's nothing that can stop me now. And the same question came into my head, and it was as clear as day, like my dad was there. I sat up. I knew it wasn't him. And then that was the first moment I acknowledged the living God. It was the first moment in my life I had recognized that there is a God in heaven that not only loves me, but is ready to act on my behalf on anyone's behalf. And I sat up and I said, Lord, it was you. And I need to find out more about this Jesus that Brian was telling me about. And from that moment on, there was a pathway to discovering my need for Christ. I didn't really know it at the time. I didn't know I needed a Savior. I didn't know I I needed Him, but I did recognize that I needed Him for a moment, and He took care of it. So I got back to the campus that next fall. First guy I was looking for was Brian Notter. And this guy was one of those Jesus lovers. He's a Jesus freak. Brian was a Jesus freak. And he's just skipping down. He just was always happy and just joyful. And he's a Marine, too. He's got short hair like me. And, he, and he's tough, but he's like, mm, I'm just a happy guy because he had the Lord in his life. And I thought, that guy's a Jesus freak. But he's the first guy I sought out. And there he is walking down the pathway. And I'm like, hey, Brian. And he ran up to me. I didn't run to him, but he ran to me because he wanted to hear how officer candidate school was. And I go, oh, it was good. I got through it. But I want to ask you something. What time are the services on uh, sun, or this Sunday at your church? And he just about did a backflip. <laughs> so over a process of a few months, I discovered my need for a Savior. And I understood more of who this Jesus was. 
And there was a commitment that I made to the maker of the universe that my life was entirely his. And those fears that I had, the fears about the future, the fears about my abilities or my lack thereof, were all gone. My wonderings about what my ultimate future is going to be were completely gone because I knew I had a future in Christ. It was doubtless to me. And that is something that's offered to each and every one of us. And I know many in this room have taken God up on that offer of eternal life, but more than that, abundant life here and now in this world, in this moment that we live in. So my question is to you, after sharing these things, and I'll be concluding here soon, so if the worship team wants to come up, that'd be great. Are you truly dwelling in the shelter of the Most High? Have you accepted God's offer of forgiveness and that joy of eternal life and abundant life here and now? Have you done that? And what impossible circumstance are you facing that is too much for the creator of the heavens and earth to be trusted for? Because I can tell you this, there is nothing beyond his ability to impact. And it may not be the outcome that you want, but it will be an incredible outcome that he has created before time ever began for you in your family, or whatever your circumstance. And are you convinced that the God of the universe, and this is a big one, because I wasn't for many years, even after I was a believer, are you convinced that the God of the universe loves you like crazy? More than anything else that he's ever created, he loves you individually, and we as a people, but he loves you individually. The most important thing I think God wants us to know about him that he loves us beyond measure, beyond what we could even conceive of. He does, in spite of all of our shortcomings, because you know what? He made us. He knows where we fall short. I've had many Marines and friends ask me how I can have joy in the midst of life's storms, and the answer is because I'm very secure in the love of my Heavenly Father. I have no doubts that he loves me, and it's not because I have the ability to please him. It's not because I have the ability to fulfill the law. It's not because I have the ability to be a good dad or a good husband or any of those things. It's not because I have the ability to be a good Marine. It's only because he loves me. And that same joy and that security that I have can be yours. And Jesus wants you to have that. Not tomorrow not a year from now, not a week from now. He wants you to have that right now. And if you don't have that, he's calling to you right now. He says, behold, I stand at the door of your heart and I'm knocking. And he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door and lets me in, I'm gonna come in and fellowship with them. I'm gonna be a part of your life forever, whether you like it or not. <laughs> I will be there. I will be there through the hard times because I've suffered those hard times far worse than you could have ever suffered. And I know what they feel like. And I will be there to comfort you and I will lead you through that. He says in John, it says that to those who received him and to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, a new title, a new place, and a new position that cannot be changed. He gave us a deposit guaranteeing our salvation and our future through the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit dwells in me 
ensuring my future in spite of me because the God of the universe loves me and he loves you as much and more. His accounting, I don't understand. I can't fathom how he can love you more than he loves me. My wife often says that God may love you, but I'm his favorite. And that's kind of how it works. That's how God works. He loves us more than we can fathom. And so today, if you, if you haven't made that commitment yet, I'd ask you to just come up here today. Just walk up to the front. If we could have some of our prayer partners up here, that's great. But if, if you'd be willing to make that kind of commitment today, this is the time. This is the hour. This is the moment. If there's things you've been struggling with in your life and trusting God to, the impossibilities, a health matter, financial matter, relationship matters, it may not be fixed the way you want it, but God is wanting to work in that matter right now. This is the hour and this is the time. Don't be afraid. If you have never truly believed that the creator of the universe loves you more than anything else, then trust him today for that. Do not walk away from here today without giving that trust to Jesus. He loves you like crazy. He died for you. God sent his very best that he's ever created for your sins to take our place of guilt. And God wants you to know that. There's nothing you did or can do to make him be pleased with you. It's impossible. He already loves you more than measurable. So if you would pray with me right now, then we'll close. Lord, I thank you for this time today. I thank you that I get to share with my brothers and sisters the impossible things you've done, and there's so much more. I thank you for your goodness and your love. And Jesus, I thank you for your relenting pursuit of us, often in spite of ourselves, and being willing to break down those walls. Help me break down more walls for you and soften them so that you can move in my heart and continue to change me and mold me into more of what you've created me to be. And I thank you for the promise of abundant life. I'm going to go live it today, Lord. I'm going to go live your abundant life. In these moments and today and the coming weeks, I am trusting you at your word, Jesus. And I thank you that you're faithful to complete the work that you've started. And in Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church.